0: Hi folks, Brendan here from Blue Light and this is the only podcast that you need to listen to for all you need to know about police recruitment and more and beyond because increasingly now I'm supporting people who are actually in the police uh, with their development because let's not forget that once you're in you've got this amazing fulfilling and successful career ahead of you but the force, the constabulary is not going to do it for you there's something there about taking control of your own career and making it happen. So increasingly now these podcasts are going to be not just for new recruits, people who want to join the police, but for people who are already serving. Now today in this podcast I'd like to talk to you about the future challenges for the police. Now whether you are a potential recruit or you're already in service, this is for you and it's just my opinion but want to share it with you because i think there's a lot of sense to it but if you don't agree please do let me know Uh, you know me i'd love a good discussion about it a good debate because these are complex wicked problems that i'm going to talk about where the resolution to them is not simple there's no absolute solutions they are complex very very difficult situations that i believe the police are going to have to deal with now this will link into your police recruitment interview When you go for your in-force interview, your final interview, you are highly likely to get asked questions about problems, priorities, challenges for the police service, challenges for that particular force. So you can come up with something a little bit more... Unusual, something that's not the regular sort of answers that they hear or just a repetition of what's on their website. If you're a serving police officer, then if you're looking to develop yourself, then I think you need to be one step ahead of the sort of changes that are coming and start thinking about how you as a professional can start adapting to the future needs of communities and the demands of communities ahead of time. Now, there's a temptation for police officers to get a little bit defensive. I I know this because I used to be one. And I've worked with police officers for, let's see, 36 years now. I've either been one or worked with police officers for 36 years because post-retirement, I've done a lot of work with police forces and councils with the European Union on um, developing and advancing better techniques for community engagement and problem solving. I've spoken at conferences. You know, I'm still embedded in the service. I'm actually part of the Metropolitan Police Deputy Commissioner's Working Group, looking at how we can address many of the issues that the, in particular, the black community of London face in terms of things like recruitment, retention, progression, and the relationship and the confidence in the police from the black community. So still very much alive and kicking in the police sector so hopefully what I'm going to talk about is going to make some sense. So the first um, big challenge that I want to put to you is uh, I'm going to call it post-pandemic connectedness. What's that all about? Well we're in this pandemic at the moment but we're going to come out of it and it looks like at the time I'm making this podcast it feels like there's a bright future ahead certainly for the United Kingdom with the rollout of the vaccine. But what the pandemic has brought us is, I think, a, a greater sense of connection in communities. I know there's a lot of people who are lonely, and a lot of people have felt a lack of connection. But one of the things I've noticed is this, this sense of community activity that suddenly came out of nowhere, So we were seeing um, small independent uh, restaurants and cafes coming together to form a collective to feed people who were vulnerable, who couldn't get out for whatever reason. Lots of activities like that, lots of volunteering. You know, I've had my jab, my first jab, and when I went there, I was absolutely amazed at the number of volunteers who were volunteering at the vaccination centres. So we've seen this. Um, huge amount of volunteering, huge amount of citizenship, this really active citizenship. Now, I think one of the challenges for the police service now is, and, and the public sector, all the public sector, councils, housing associations, uh, NHS, uh, you name it, I think there's a role here for all of the public sector to start thinking less as public servants and more as the enabler of citizens. So what does that mean? Well, I'm going to argue, and uh, there's a lot of theory behind this, social capital theory and such like, but I'm going to argue, put an argument forward that uh, communities that are well-connected with people who are active as citizens are less likely to have crime and antisocial behaviour. They're less likely to have people suffering from mental health problems. They're less likely to have people suffering from alcohol addiction, drug addiction they're less likely to have people who are who are unhappy and lonely the more likely to have people who are connected, active and doing things as citizens to help that community to become the best version of itself it can be. And some of you might be thinking, well, what's that got to do with the police? It's got everything to do with the police. Everything to do with the police. I'm going to quote one of the principles from Sir Robert Peel who set down the Peelian Principles in 1829. Now, you might have heard part of this before because it goes like this. The historic tradition that the police are the public and the public are the police. You're going to think, oh yeah, yeah, I've heard that before. Yeah, But what does it actually mean? Well, not many people I speak to actually know the bit that comes next in that principle. So the police should always remember the historic tradition that was historic in 1829 that the police are the public and the public are the police. The police just being members of the public who are paid full time to carry out a role which is incumbent On all citizens in the interests of community welfare and existence. Now, let's break this down because I think this is quite impactful. What he's saying is that the police are the public and the public are the police. We hear that loads, but then he adds meaning to it. The police are just members of the public who are paid full time, but they're paid full time to carry a role which is incumbent. That's a big word, isn't it? It's almost like a requirement of all citizens. Now, it changes the language there from members of the public to citizens, which I think is interesting. There's a shift there. Because I think members of the public are passive recipients of services, whereas citizens are people who are active in their community, doing something to enable their community, community and themselves and their families to be the best versions of themselves they can be. So he talks about uh, the police, uh, police of the public, the public of the police, police just being members of the public who are paid full time to carry out a role which is incumbent on all citizens, and and here comes a special bit, in the interest of community welfare and existence. Just let that settle in for a moment. Because he could have said, in the interest of reducing crime, he could have said, in the interest of getting the bad guys, he could have said in the interest of community safety, but he didn't. This man was visionary. I think he recognised that communities that have a great sense of welfare in existence are ones that are safer, ones where people are happier where people who are connected and active in the community, supporting each other, enabling each other, are less likely to suffer from mental health problems, drug and alcohol addiction, they're more likely to achieve whatever achievement means for them, and are more likely to have happy and fulfilling lives, they're more likely to love where they live. And should this not be an aspiration for all of us, no matter where we are, no matter where we work, now, I was talking to a PCSO the other day who was saying that when she started, when she first started in the police and she said where she was going to be based, everyone was already t- talking it down at the training centre. Everyone was talking it down. Oh, you're going to be based there? Oh, wow. Phew. Well, you're going to have your work pulled out there. Do you know, It's unbelie- the people there are unbelievable. This is a, a highly... Uh, I'm going to use the phrase deprived because you'll know what that means. But I don't like that phrase because working in those areas, I've never met anyone who describes themselves as deprived. I see lots of people of promise who are capable, who are excited about their future, of enabling their community to be the best version of itself it can be, of becoming citizens. So one of the things I think we've got as a challenge for the police is changing the narrative about communities that uh, Dave Thompson, you know, Sir, Sir Dave Thompson, Chief Council of West Midlands Police, I think he refers to him as uh, communities at a tipping point, communities at a tipping point. I, I like that. It's better than deprived community, isn't it? So what what can we do to be less public servant and more the enabler of citizens? And I think there's a challenge there, especially post-pandemic with the connectedness, connectedness and the active citizenship that exists now there's a danger that when the pandemic goes that people return back to their norm to what they were and that energy is not enabled and it just fizzles out or we can see ourselves less as public servants who deal with members of the public who see themselves as the passive recipients of a service. And we can become the enabler of citizens. So as opposed to try and fix the problems in communities, fix what's wrong, we're going to build on what's strong, to take a phrase out of the world of asset-based community development. We're going to build on what's strong in the community. We're going to identify those people who are capable, connected, they care enough to act, and they're committed. I call it the four Cs, people who are capable, and connected and these are our volunteers now they care enough to act well they do because they're out there doing amazing things now and they're committed to taking further action in their community if instead of looking at the problems of yesterday and trying to fix them all and of course there is a place for fixing the problems of yesterday but instead if we look at enabling them to create a vision for their community the best version of itself it can be where if if resources were unlimited and finances weren't an issue, what would the best version of their community look like in two or three years' time? And then we're going to enable them to get there. Now, I can do other uh, podcasts and videos on YouTube about this. If you want more information, please do let me know. It's the sort of work I was doing when I was a neighbourhood inspector years ago. Um, I I had the same thoughts. uh, Robert Peel got it right, we've got it wrong. We're not public servants. Because that just builds up this client-dependent relationship in communities. And it's been endemic within communities for decades now. So how can we break out of that silo that we find ourselves in to become more the enabler of citizens, to enable people in communities to get that sense of community welfare in existence and enable them to develop the best version of their community that they can. So... There's one challenge for us, folks. The next challenge, I think, is going to be a greater demand for accountability and scrutiny with the police. We're already seeing that with some protests and vigils, and I'm seeing that in the work I'm doing with the Deputy Commissioner's Working Group uh, for the Metropolitan Police, especially around stop and search. Now, no, I'm going to use that as an example, actually, Stop and Search. No one, no one, none of the critics of the Metropolitan Police and Stop and Search are saying that Stop and Search should not happen. Everyone can see the value in it. The problem is that black, young black males are disproportionately targeted by the use of Stop and Search powers. And that is deeply upsetting for many members of the community i've listened to them these are people who are counselors and and leaders within the community and solicitors and awesome people in their community at the last working group meeting i'm going to try and stick to the chatham house rules here but one individual was talking about how he'd gone to a meeting at a police station in his role as a community leader and on the way out he was stopped and searched what color do you think he was yeah he's black do you think that would have happened if he was white I don't know, maybe, I don't know. But there's definitely a disproportionate use of that power. Now, no one is saying that stop and search should not happen. But I think there's a desire now for greater scrutiny of how that power is used. And so I don't think it's the what. I think the challenge now is in the how. How is, how is that power being utilised? How is the power to manage protest individuals being utilised? How is the relationship between the community and the police being managed for the mutual benefit of both? Because remember, the police are the public and the public are the police. The police are just members of the public. They're just paid full time to carry out a role which is incumbent on everyone in the of and all citizens in the interest of community welfare in existence. So is there something there about a greater sense of connectedness between the police and communities so that the police are more a part of the community as opposed to apart from the community. A little play on words there for you. So I think that's a, another big challenge there. And I, I think what we're going to see, although there's a bit of a reluctance at the moment, I think we're going to see the greater use of the formation of something beyond independent advisory groups. I think we're going to see community scrutiny panels I know certainly the Metropolitan Police has got a desire to implement those because I've I've seen the policy. Uh, Chatham House Rules, I can't tell you what's in it yet, but I've seen the draft policy. And there's definitely an appetite for enabling members of the community to scrutinise the actions of officers. Why not? Why shouldn't they have access to body-worn video footage? Why not? You know, you might be thinking, yeah, but, you know, we need to keep that to ourselves. Well, why? Accountability, transparency, key values and competencies within the Code of Ethics there. So how are we going to enable the community to, one, have that level of scrutiny, which is helpful and supportive? I think that's a real, that's a massive challenge that it needs to be helpful and supportive and bo- both ways, both ways. So I think this is going to be some work in progress here, and certainly if I was a serving officer and I was listening to this, and you're in a position where you can help enable that change, I'd be looking to get ahead of that curve. And can we go one step further than community scrutiny panels? So in many areas, um, ride-alongs are allowed. Well, why don't we actively encourage people to go on ride-alongs with the police? Okay, it comes with some checks and balances and there's some risks there, but I've done it years ago and they managed those risks and made sure that they were safe and they all got home okay and they all witnessed at times some very very difficult policing. But I often talk about a TPAC model so in everything we do in policing it should be there should be something to do with trust building, something to do with enforcement, something to do with prevention, something to do with advocacy for the community and communication. Now. I'm seeing a withdrawal from some forces of things like Twitter accounts and Facebook and stuff like that. So it's becoming more corporate. A big mistake, I think. Big mistake. The more people are seen as being real and connected with the community, the better. As opposed to a faceless um, Twitter account for a certain area. Where, okay, the people who used to have their individual full of personality Twitter accounts are now being subsumed into that uh, greater local corporate account. But they're still going to be fairly boring, I think, compared to the exciting stuff that comes out of some of the characters. So the communication from people who people know and trust is always, always more valuable than something that's coming from corporate HQ. Or Please feel free to argue with me but on that one, but that's my view, and I think it's the view of most people as well. So in terms of believability accountability who's going to be believed and the most by members of the community a police officer who is speaking behind a corporate account a police officer who is known and trusted as a voice within that community a part of that community or Someone who's actually gone out from that community to observe what the police are doing, they've filmed it, they've photographed it, they've talked to the people involved, and they are then then tweeting it, stick it on Facebook, put it on YouTube, put it on Instagram, TikTok, all the different methods of getting messages out there and a narrative and a story out there. Okay, I know you're going to say there's some risk here, because what if things go pear-shaped and it doesn't go well? Well, that's life in a blue suit. That's what happens in the police. Sometimes things don't go to plan. And this is where I think there's a, a greater need for police officers to start being less defensive. I'm not saying all are, but I'm saying some are. You look at Twitter sometimes, you look at the press, you look at responses to things from senior officers, and sometimes I feel this sense of defensiveness. Yeah, but we're doing our best, or we're damned if, I've seen it about vigils and stop and search. We're damned if we do, and we're damned if we don't. How's that helpful? You know, it's like saying, well, I give up. You know, I give up. We're damned if we do and we're damned if we don't. I'm not saying I've got solutions here. I've just got some thoughts and ideas because I think this is really, really difficult and challenging. So having people go out and witness and film and take photographs of things that the police are doing in public places, deliberately, I think might have some value because at least you're being accountable, at least you're being transparent. And sometimes things won't go right. Right. But one of the things I noticed in my career was that whenever we dealt with an operation, a search warrant or a sporting event or anything big like that, there were always little hot debriefs built into it. And certainly at the end of an incident, there was always a hot debrief at the end of it and sometimes a a bigger, deeper, critical incident debrief. So we're used to that for things like, like I said, operations and search warrants and firearms operations and such like. But are we used to it when we see one of our colleagues do a stop and search and it wasn't the best? You know, it could have been better. Do we give feedback without the person necessarily complaining? Do we? Do we have a hot debrief after that? I'm not not sure and I'm not convinced we do. Because we need to be accepting, I think, that in our interactions with members of the community, it's not always going to be great. Sometimes it's going to be awesome and sometimes it's not. That's just the way things are. So when it's awesome, do we give each other that properly structured feedback? And when it's not that good, do we challenge it? And I'm not talking about code of ethics challenge here, because what I wouldn't want this officer's holding her hands up straight away and going, I'm not saying a word without the Fed rep being present. And is this a complaint? No, it's not. It's just me communicating with you, saying that when I saw you do this, what I noticed was either awesome or I think you could do better there. But I'm prepared to be challenged back. Do we have that culture? Do we need that culture? So there you go. There's another challenge I'm going to put in front of you. There's other challenges I'd like to talk about with things like early intervention, but um, that would be a really, really big one. Perhaps for another podcast... um, because I think that's going to be a massive challenge. The challenge of early intervention, linking that with the post-pandemic connectedness and enabling communities to be the best versions of themselves. I think there's a lot there about early intervention. And I know a lot of forces have the sort of violence reduction units, early intervention teams, and I can see absolutely see the value in that. So perhaps for another podcast another day, because that's a, a lot of work I've been involved with as well. Not now, but like 15 years ago when I was pioneering some approaches and i say pioneering because they were pioneering because i had superintendents saying what the effing hell are you doing now i think Oh, this will make a difference in like five years time ten years time but they weren't interested because what they were interested in was targets and i think this is going to be a big challenge for the police because we've got the twenty thousand up left that's still being rolled out uh two years ago or so i think the police service of england and wales about was about hundred and twenty thousand. within a year or so now from now the Police Service of England and Wales will have just over 140,000 police officers in it if things go to track. That is costing a fortune. I'm absolutely convinced that the government of today will want to see some results. Do not be surprised if we see the reintroduction of targets because they'll want to see some visible, tangible results for an extra 20,000 police officers. Now there presents a big challenge because you could either direct those additional officers to take more of a preventative stance with other agencies so that we reduce the demand over the years. I talk about years because having experienced this kind of problem solving, you have to invest in a vision that is three to five years long. We are not talking about targets three weeks away, three months away. We're talking about enabling communities to be the best versions of themselves and this could take years of investment, years of investment. But it'll pay off because the demand will fall. It will, I promise you. There's research out there that shows it. I can tap into that research if I want to. If anyone wants to challenge me on this, I can tap into that research and send it to you. But it makes sense, doesn't it? If we invest in prevention, then we're going to have less demand. Duh. But I think there's going to be a big challenge now because the government are going to want to see targets being hit. And I fear that those targets will be very much around short termism. And having lived in a very target based, lived, worked in a very target based force previously in Greater Manchester. And, you know, don't anyone tell me for one moment that targets weren't being a big issue in Greater Manchester police in the 90s and early noughties. Uh, they were massive Peter Fahey the Chief Constable of Greater Manchester talked about the perverse uh, results that targets produce Uh, Chatham House Rules (laughs) had a big conversation with him about it but that's all I can say really Um, but they create these perverse behaviours watch out for this folks if you're serving or you're about to go into the police because those perverse behaviours I've seen them I can make a burglary problem go away overnight Yeah, I can. I can make a violent crime problem disappear. I can make criminal damage just become a thing of the past. You want detections? You want detected crimes? I can double the number of detected crimes. Every game that can be played around targets. I'm an expert. Perhaps unethical at times. I don't know. (laughs) I have to sit on the fence a little bit in Greater Manchester and think, is what I'm doing right but it's demanded of me it's required of me by the command meet these targets and the example that's set by some senior officers where I'd hear them talking about can we change the category of this violent crime against a police officer to something else so it doesn't appear in our basket of violent crimes a 15 minute discussion about that from superintendents and chief inspectors that's not isolated this happened all the time as opposed to Is he okay? Let's reach out to him. Let's help support him. Now, that probably happened as well, but it's a conversation about targets. So if you are a senior officer, what example are you setting? If you're younger in service, you will be that senior officer in just a couple of years' time. There's every reason, there's no reason why you joining now could not be an inspector in three to four years' time, because that 20,000 uplift is going to result in, in about two years' time, about 50%, just under 50% of all police officers are going to have less than five years service. Now that's a crisis in recruitment and developing people at pace, but it's also going to lead to a crisis in supervision and management because where are all the sergeants and inspectors going to come from to lead them, to manage them, to set an example, especially if they're being berated by targets from the government. So there you go, folks. My thoughts on some of the challenges for the future. I'm sure I could expand on it, but that's 26 minutes in. That's quite a long podcast for me. But it's something I'm quite passionate about still. Because I think at the end of this, as we get towards the end of this pandemic, when I say end, I don't mean weeks away, I mean months away, maybe a year or two away, or maybe we'll never be out of this pandemic fully. I see huge opportunities ahead of us as a police service, as a country, as a community. I see massive, massive opportunities. But I also see the potential to go back to what we were before. Things aren't going to be like they were before. Things are going to be different. So my big question to you, whether you're a serving police officer or you're looking to join the police is, what part are you going to play in making that different? I know, a bit deep, but have a think about it hopefully you've enjoyed this podcast it's a little bit different to the ones I normally do but it's just it just struck me this week that yeah there's some big challenges not just for those of you want to join the police but for those of you who are serving now so my last message to you is if you are serving then sincerely I love you for what you do I think you're doing an amazing amazing job at the moment and I know members of the community love you as well I was talking to some dog walkers the other day. Once they found out as a retired police officer, they were talking about how amazing they believe and feel our police are. I'm not sure if that message is actually reaching you. So there you go. On behalf of the dog walkers, on Little Hobmore, they love you. And I think there's lots of people all around the country that love you for what you're doing. And I think that love's sincere as well. So if you're hoping to join the police... You're going in at a very, very exciting time where you can be that difference that's going to enable more love from the community. So stay safe, folks, especially if you're serving. Look after each other. Ask each other if you're okay and ask it again. And ask ask each other how you're feeling. Check in with yourself. Check in with each other. Difficult times, challenging times, but we're all behind you. And I'll speak to you soon. Bye-bye for now.